Assalamu alaikum wa rahmatullah. May the peace, mercy, and blessings of Allah subhanahu wa be upon all of you. Welcome to Islam and Life, and thank you for welcoming us into your home this evening to share in these conversations. My name is Maymuna Hussain, and this is my co-host, Brother Khalid Al-Qazaz. We welcome you from our studio here live tonight uh, for Islam and Life, and we will shortly be introducing our guest who's in studio as well. I want to remind you a couple of things. Islam and Life can be found as a podcast as well after tonight's show on a few platforms and you'll see those links coming up on the bottom of the screen as well. Uh, so those are Google Podcasts, uh, Podbe the, the Podbean app, uh, the Amazon Music Podcast, uh, Amazon TuneIn and Alexa, iHeartRadio, as well as Player PM. FM. So, you can be driving or working or doing your own things and listening in on this great conversation or if you feel that there was something good that happened tonight and you want to share it with your family and friends, please share that, uh, those, any of those links where they can listen in, inshallah. So as we begin, we say, Bismillahirrahmanirrahim. We begin with the remembrance and praise of Allah subhanahu wa and with anything that we do hope will bring goodness. And so we'll begin with a few uh, verses of recitation from the Holy Quran. <laughs> So as you know, with Islam and life, our hope is to really engage in conversations that ground us in what's happening in our surroundings, and we uh, will have guests that contribute, that talk to us, and people who are really contributing to the uh, Canadian Islamic uh, narrative, either through activism or academic research or leadership or community service. So those are the types of things we hope to bring uh, into this show, inshallah. And this show is a production of the Muslim Association of Canada. The other thing is that there are live Q&A uh, opportunities at the end of the show, so we invite you to call in or send us your questions live on YouTube as you're watching so that we can ask those questions to our guests. Uh, so if you want to join us live and ask your questions, um, you can join us on Zoom. Uh, the meeting number is 905-822-2626. Now before we get into tonight's conversation, we want to invite you all to engage in our critical question of the week. And I want to invite Brother Khalid to tell us a little bit about what this whole critical question business is. Yes, as we uh, discussed last, uh, last week, uh, we, we don't want to make this show uh, a one-way show where we and our guests share our opinions and ideas. We want it actually to be a two-way stream. And we want the discourse in our community uh, to involve more of critical thinking and uh, uh, questioning of uh, uh, the ideas that we that we live by, so part of the part of the show will be in the beginning uh, to set a question uh, and leave it for the audience to think about and engage uh, offline or en engage uh, later 
uh, through email or through uh, our different channels. And we want to take this and actually have a discussion about it at later, uh, at later segments. And uh, I believe we have an interesting uh, uh, question for, uh, for this week. And uh, Sister Mimuna has the question. All right, so our question is, should we as a Muslim community be comfortable with the framing as a minority community in Canada? Are we comfortable with this idea of being minorities in Canada? Why or why not? And as Brother Khaled has shared with us, you can uh, send us your answers. You can email us at productions at macnet.ca. You can type it in live on YouTube right now. Uh, you can send it on any of our social media platforms. So that's on Facebook or our Instagram. Uh, and here's this, so this is the question. Should we as, Mus as a Muslim community be comfortable with the framing as a minority community in Canada, why or why not? Brother Khaled, what are your thoughts? Yeah, so again, I'm not giving the answer. I'm actually actually <laughs> asking a few more, uh, a few more questions. So uh, as sub questions, and and in this show, what we're trying to do is to think uh, from an Islamic perspective and what would what is really the Islamic way, and it's not really the Islamic way as in halal or haram, but what is the framing that is in line with the overall message and the overall objectives of Islam. And I think this is an important dimension that we should ask ourselves. What is the better setup for society? Is it, as we see, a wider balance of minorities and uh, how they interact with each, with each other? And on the individual level, is it uh, the uh, uh, commandment of Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala uh, or the uh, assignment of Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala to the individual to play his role uh, within, is it easier to play it within a minority or within the wider society to contribute to the benefit of all humanity? So, uh, so these are interesting dimensions to think about and see how do we position ourselves as a, as a community uh, in this society. And I think this is enough for the, for, uh, uh, for the critical question and we can get into uh, the discussion with our guests. Send us your thoughts on that. So now let's talk about tonight's episode. This evening we'll be looking at Islamophobia in Canada. What does Islamophobia do to a community, both at the individual and collective level? And uh, what should our role be in tackling Islamophobia? We have two important guests who will be participating in this conversation with us. Uh, but first, let's take a look at the video that our research team has put together. The International Civil Liberties Monitoring Group released a report in 2021 concluding that the Canada Revenue Agency is purposely increasing audits and revocations of Muslim charities in its attempt to counter terrorist financing. It was reported that between 2008 and 2015, 75% of all charities revoked by the CRA's Review and Analyses Division were in fact Muslim charities. Under layered suspicion, a research collaboration between the National Council of Canadian Muslims and the University of Toronto discovered structural biases and prejudicial policies that influenced the Canada Revenue Agency's Review and Analyses Division to select Muslim-led charities for audit. Professor Jasmine Zine from Wilfrid Laurier University recently released a 240-page report based on a four-year study on the coordinated and monetized nature of Islamophobia in Canada. Direct links were found between media outlets, Islamophobia influencers, white nationalist groups, self-professed Muslim dissidents, think tanks, and the donors who fund their campaigns. Islamophobia has proven to have an increasingly worrisome and in some cases deadly impact on Canadians 
As we have witnessed in the Quebec City mosque shooting of 2017 and the murder of innocent Muslims in London, Ontario, 2021. On July 22, 2021, the Government of Canada held a virtual national summit on Islamophobia. For Muslim communities, this was a much-needed platform to identify concrete ways to combat Islamophobia across the country. During the summit, the Government of Canada made a few commitments that are related to engaging directly with Muslim communities, such as looking at the Security Infrastructure Program, looking at the digital literacy and tackling misinformation, developing dedicated resources to support government work on combating Islamophobia, conducting a systemic study to address the concerns of Muslim-led charitable organizations, and taking a whole-of-government approach when acting on these priorities. Troubled by an increase of hate crimes against Muslims in recent years, the Senate Committee on Human Rights held public hearings in November 2022 to hear from affected communities for its study on Islamophobia in Canada. A range of community leaders, stakeholders, academics, and survivors of anti-Muslim discrimination and violence shared their experiences and perspectives. In tonight's episode, along with our guests, Dr. Aziza Kanji, a legal academic, a writer and a journalist, as well as Mustafa Farouk, former CEO of MCCM, we will take a deeper look at the government's role in the Islamophobia narrative and what implications it has for both the Muslim and the non-Muslim community in Canada. So, we're going to get right into this. We welcome uh, Brother Mustafa Farouk and also congratulate him on his recent uh, reception of the Queen Elizabeth Diamond Jubilee Platinum Award. And we also welcome uh, Sister Aziza Kanji, who's joining us online. Uh, Brother Khalid, do you want to start? Or? Yes, uh, so, uh, so we're, we're fortunate to have uh, our dear friends, uh, Brother Mustafa and uh, Sister Aziza, who are uh, uh, partners in... Uh, who, who are among other uh, advocates in our community are uh, front runners in uh, this advocacy effort uh, on behalf of our community. Uh, and uh, they have uh, taken this work uh, uh, from the beginning, even from when it was even challenging and discussing even the recognition of Islamophobia as a, uh, as a, as a systemic issue in, uh, in Canada. We wanna uh, introduce uh, uh, our community uh, in this episode to systemic Islamophobia and structural Islamophobia versus uh, uh, what is commonly known uh, among people when they see incidents of violence, <laughs> incidents of uh, discrimination against Muslims in general. Uh, how is it different and, uh, uh, and how, what is the role of the state and the role of uh, uh, the government in combating this deep uh, structural uh, forms of uh, discrimination and, and bias? And uh, let's start with uh, Brother Mustafa. Uh, Bismillah. So, I mean, I, I won't speak too long just so that we can we can dive into more of a discussion. But I think the reality is that uh, systemic Islamophobia um, has obviously been a massive factor uh, in the lives of many Muslims, certainly observable in the last uh, 20 years. I remember as a kid going to the masjid and when we would be exiting, you'd see written above the phone, they listen here. Uh, you know, because the masjid was quite certain it was being wiretapped. Uh, and so right as an 11-year-old kid, you're exposed to this notion that, you know, the government is, you know, surveilling the masjid. And, you know, as you grow, as I, you know, joined with groups like the National Council of Canadian Muslims, we discovered 
and of course the Canadian Muslim community has been continuing, continuing to discover uh, the degree to which uh, systemic Islamophobia is, has played its role at every level, um, from uh, discriminatory legislation like Bill 21 in Quebec uh, to things like the way that the national security establishment uh, works at the federal level, to the way that um, police agencies locally uh, have permeated uh, or been permeated uh, by white supremacist or Islamophobic groups. Uh, I think we, we have seen a way in which the very groups that were supposed to be protecting us uh, have often been militarized against us. And, and that's to say nothing of the, the way that we see our immigration system uh, and the way that uh, people who are from uh, Muslim communities have not had equal access to the way that employment has worked, to the way that housing has worked. Uh, at, at, at virtually every level, we see the degree to which systemic Islamophobia holds our community back. But I think also, uh, and to Brother Khalid's you know, very correct point, as, as members of our community, uh, our work is always to rise uh, and to, to hold together uh, because you know, truly when there is truth, then, then falsehood cannot remain. And I, I, I truly feel that when we continue to speak that truth, uh, you know, that kalimat al-haq in the sultah in Ja'ir, a word of truth to, uh, to, a, to a tyrant, uh, that is uh, the way that we will continue to resist and inshallah uh, defeat the worst uh, parts of systemic Islamophobia. Thank you, Brother Mustafa, for your perspective. I want to invite uh, Sister Aziza online here joining us. Uh, your perspectives on, you know, how has systemic Islamophobia permeated, uh, existed, and proliferated through? It seems uh, Sister Aziza dropped, and I think the tech team is trying to uh, reach, reach out to her. So we'll continue the conversation with uh, Brother Mustafa. And Brother Mustafa, you've had a uh, first-hand experience in dealing and interacting with government and and uh, uh, if you can pinpoint to us really uh, examples, like practical examples that the audience would uh, uh, see uh, in, uh, of uh, systemic Islamophobia or structural Islamophobia. Well, I mean, I think it, it, we could talk at every single level. I mean, one of the, the ways in which the organization that I was part of really stood on its first feet you know, many years ago in 2002 was in dealing with the case of Maher Arar. Maher was a uh, Syrian-Canadian uh, who was extraordinarily rendered uh, with the full complicity of the Canadian government where he was horrifically tortured. Uh, and I mean, we've seen examples of that up until this day of the Canadian government doing atrocious things uh, that have resulted in the real uh, detainment and torture uh, of Canadians. Uh, uh, just now uh, we had, of course, the, the, the story of that film that came out about the Mauritanian. Uh, who's now suing the Canadian government for uh, his detainment, his great crime in Montreal, uh, talking about tea and coffee, which the Canadian government passed on as intelligence, uh, allegedly, to their U.S. counterparts, which resulted in him being horrifically tortured for years. Uh, we have currently in Ottawa uh, people like Mohamed Harakat, who have been held uh, under security certificates to this day, like I'm not talking about 10 years ago, to this day, uh, never been formally charged, uh, never had a trial, uh, continuing to wait out uh, an interminable uh, degree. And if that's not systemic Islamophobia, I don't know what is, other than the fact that if you cross the river in Ottawa and you go across 
if you wear hijab, if you wear uh, a turban, you're not allowed to have certain public sector jobs. And as a country, we seem very willing to continue to give this a pass. Oh, it's Quebec, it's its own thing. Uh, and, and we seem very willing to give that a pass. Um, uh, and again, we, we could talk about this uh, at, at length, and I'm sure we continue. We, we will continue to. Yeah, but the, the, the point here is, especially with the incidents of uh, uh, the individuals who've suffered uh, uh, from these surrendering activities, uh, that it is uh, maybe uh, an individual person's decision at one of these agencies. And how, how is this different from it being a structure or a systemic issue? So I would actually push back a little bit against that because oftentimes the agencies at the highest leadership levels were directly involved uh, uh, and implicated as it came out in the, the Maharar inquiry uh, that some of the, the leadership and, 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 and to this day, much of the leadership at places like CSIS uh, remains deeply invested in not disclosing, for example, how many Muslim institutions are surveilled. Uh, you know, at the CRA, uh, at the highest leadership level, we haven't seen accountability or disclosure. Uh, the taxpayer ombudsperson, who has been in trying to do a quote-unquote study uh, into uh, systemic discrimination on Muslim charities, has not gotten the documents that they need to find out definitively are Muslim charities being profiled or not. That's at the level, at the highest levels, that those decisions are being made. And so that's not about an individual bad actor, that's about an institution. Uh, and again, we could expound on this ad nauseum uh, if we'd like to. Thank you, Brother Mustafa. I've just been told that Sister Aziza is back with us. Assalamualaikum, Sister Aziza, are you here? Walaikum salam, I'm here. Can you hear me? Yes, great to have you here with, me, uh, with us tonight. So I want to continue this conversation that uh, Brother Mustafa is kind of uh, shedding light on, and that is uh, this idea that systemic Islamophobia proliferates and uh, you know, come, uh, that concept of it being systemic through the government, that's not individual players. And if you can comment on this, I know you've uh, done extensive research and you've collected uh, you know, organizations on this in terms of uh, what, what does it mean when we talk about systemic Islamophobia existing and proliferating through the government? Certainly, thank you so much for that important question. And I'm sorry I couldn't hear what, um, what Brother Mustafa said um, earlier in the discussion. But it is so extremely misleading, this emphasis that we now have the government purporting to address Islamophobia, but really just focusing on acts of individual violence by actors labeled extremist in a way which continues to ignore and obscure the deep racism embedded in the institutions of the state itself. How can we be surprised that there would be widespread suspicion and fear of Muslims when we know that institutions like the CRA have placed Muslims in a place where the securitization and suspicion of Muslims is so entrenched that we're in a position where we're having to beg in order to give charity. That is the degree of suspicion our basic charitable institutions are under. How can we be surprised that people could think they could commit acts of violence against Muslims with impunity when the 
agents of the state at CSIS and RCMP who were implicated, um, named in public inquiries as being involved and responsible and complicit in the torture and uh, secret detention of Muslims abroad in gross violation of international law were not only not prosecuted as is required under international law, but in fact, many of them were actually uh, promoted and given awards. How can we be surprised that abuses against Muslims would be covered up when Canada continues to advance policies of impunity for abuses of Muslims, not only domestically, but also abroad, as we have seen with the Canadian government actively working to block the investigation of Israel, Israel's war crimes and crimes against humanity, against Palestinians at the International Criminal Court. And so when we talk about Islamophobia and these normalized practices of disposability, dehumanization, and demonization of Muslims, it is extremely misleading to represent it as a question simply of individuals rather than these practices that have been executed, ratified, and covered up by the state. And it is even more dangerous, in fact, that now, given this discourse that represents Islamophobia as a problem of individual extremists, those very same state institutions of counterterrorism, of speech suppression, of surveillance, of counter-radicalization, which have been so involved and responsible for um, the, the subjugation and oppression and securitization of Muslims are now being represented as the response or the solution to Islamophobia without correcting any of the problems that continue to be deeply embedded within them. And so we see, for example, former um, CSIS officials like Professor Stephanie Carvin, who was exposed for baking cakes depicting atrocities against Muslims, drone killings and torture, baking cakes depicting these as pleasurable items for consumption. She is now being represented as an expert on how we fight Islamophobia and right-wing extremism, as if she herself has not been an, been an agent of this Islamophobia all along. And so the idea that Islamophobia is an issue of individual perpetrators is not simply incomplete or partial, but it is ideologically biased and extremely dangerous in the current situation that we now find where these um, powers are being represented as the solution to Islamophobia. This is not progress. It's an entrenchment of violent state uh, capacities exercised in a draconian fa fashion without accountability or transparency. So interestingly, so thank you, Sister Aziza, and, uh, and interestingly, the, the arguments uh, uh, around Islamophobia has a full, uh, uh, full, sp uh, full spectrum, all the way from people not even acknowledging, and gladly the, the, the Prime Minister in several occasions have acknowledged the existence of Islamophobia within government, but some of the other arguments relate to the issue of legislation. So, for example, and uh, NCCM has worked a lot on Bill 21 in uh, Quebec, uh, and uh, it is a matter of uh, democratic choice of uh, the Quebec people. And this is not my opinion, but this is the opinion of some. And uh, why is it that the Muslim community is not willing to agree or accept uh, the opinion of uh, uh, the majority in, uh, in Quebec, for example? Would you like me to, to yes, answer, or is, or is that for Brother Mustafa? Uh, so the reason Mustafa. why... The reason why we have human right, rights and constitutional rights entrenched in what are called liberal democracies is precisely because the rights of minorities are susceptible to perpetual violation by those of majority. And in a state like Canada, a white supremacist settler state, 
we have to understand that uh, racism by those who represent themselves as the paradigmatic citizens of Canada, old stock Canadians, as they call themselves, who are really uh, the descendants of white settlers, has been embedded in in Canada from the start. And so this idea that, that can, um, Muslims should just go along with the uh, will of the democracy, that this is a democratic uh, decision that's being made by Quebec, that doesn't mitigate the violence of, of things like Bill 21, grossly um, imposing uh, exclusion and economic insecurity on those who are most already most vulnerable in society in the name even more grotesquely of saving them from their uh, from their backwards religious practices the fact that this is the will of the majority that doesn't mitigate the violence of it in fact it only further exacerbates the violence of it because it speaks to how uh, deeply acceptable and widely acceptable islamophobia is in canadian society you know, we often think of racism, again, when we think of it as a matter of extremism, as something that's um, that's an exception, that really disguises the way that Islamophobia has been institutionalized as, in many ways, common sense, all across the political spectrum, from left to right. And this is precisely what makes Islamophobia, in many ways, so difficult to, um, to identify and address, because there are things in it to appeal to everyone from across the political spectrum. It's interesting that when um, Kelly Leach, a conservative leadership candidate, had proposed instituting a values test for people coming into Canada, and we know that this was really targeted at Muslims, this uh, actually received high levels of support from across the political spectrum but the values that they wanted to be interrogating people for were different for on the right it was a values of of patriotism on the left it was supposedly support for gender equality and we know that this is so disingenuous because in the name of of imposing gender equality on muslim women it actually ends up further criminalizing and marginalizing them and disenfranchising them in society um so no, the idea that this is a de that this is democratic is not uh, only not a mitigating factor in this case. It actually speaks to how deeply and widely entrenched uh, Islamophobia and other forms of racism are in the in the white settler uh, colonial Canadian state. Thank you, Sister Aziza, for this uh, uh, strong response. But uh, they take it even further, and uh, especially for Bill Twenty One, Brother Mustafa, they say now it's a matter of uh, rule of law. They've taken it to court, and uh, the courts also seem to have uh, an opinion. And can we call it a biased opinion? And uh, you are in the, you are you uh, you were uh, through NCCM uh, engaged in this uh, in court. And can you just tell us a uh, comment on uh, uh, the fact that also judicial opinion might also uh, impact our community? Sure. So I think just just for clear clarity, where the Quebec like the Bill Twenty One litigation is at right now. Uh, my understanding is that it's in front uh, right now it's the arguments were heard at the quebec court of appeal uh, but at the superior court level um, part of bill 21 uh, in relation to it applying to english school boards uh, was uh, was 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 struck um, there's a there's a, a number of complexities in which that's it, it's continued to be enforced on english school boards uh, but just so that there's clarity in terms of, of, of what we're talking about. Uh, but what that really means, though, from, from our perspective, uh, as I think members of the community, is that we still have a piece of legislation and we still have a, 
province in which you cannot wear the hijab uh, or you can't wear a turban, uh, a topi, uh, uh, and be a teacher uh, still in any school. Um, I think if we want to think about Bill 21 and we want to think about this important question you're raising uh, about citizenship, we really have to think about what does it mean to be a citizen? Um, and what does it mean to live in a state of exception? Uh, the political philosopher Giorgio Gambin, in his book, The State of Exception, talks about how, and I'm dramatically oversimplifying, but how democracy can really be viewed as a history of moving from one state of exception to another. And so, like, for example, the way that the Canadian government had, or, or the way that the Quebec government um, is trying to escape constitutional scrutiny is by relying on the notwithstanding clause, which is essentially a quasi-emergency clause. Uh, so how we as Canadians accept the notion of that state of exception, where we become the exceptional bodies that can be targeted, uh, is something that we have as a community to constantly push back on. Uh, because the entire, you know, the real, uh, one can really view this question of citizenship as the integral question that we as a community have to think about how are we structuring our response and how are we thinking about engaging to really interrogate this notion. Thank you. I want to move and we try to you know, engage our audience in thinking about how to think about these issues practically. Um, and so one of the things that comes to mind is that the Liberal government, you know, they're really trying to frame, we hear the government, that they're, that they're you know, friends of the Muslim community, that they're trying to support the Muslim community. Um, and then we have these pieces of, you know, systemic issues that we've been discussing tonight. And so how do we kind of find that balance and that positioning between working with the governments that we have, uh, pushing for the issues that are at stake for us as Muslims, um, and that relationship. It's a super complicated question. I'd love to hear Brother Khaled's perspective <laughs> and, and your perspective as well and Sister Aziza's. But I think the way that we have to do it is honestly, right? I think we have to say what's good and identify it mm. and identify what's not good. Um, I think there are certainly practical steps that have been taken by the Liberal governments, there have been steps that have been undertaken that have been positive uh, by Conservatives, and there have been positive steps that have been undertaken by the NDP. I mean this at a federal level. Obviously, we can look at provincially and municipally as well. Uh, but, uh, but, but federally, I mean, things like that have been positive have been things like the Special Representative on Islamophobia, uh, the things like banning white supremacist groups. These, uh, to me, have been positive things. Uh, I know some folks may have questions or skepticisms. Those are totally fine and legitimate. Uh, but I think that also requires us to simultaneously identify things that are not going so well and where action isn't being properly undertaken. Uh, and I think that we have to just be morally consistent. Uh, and our call to the people that we elect and that we pay for is to be morally consistent as well. Sister Aziza, I think uh, you have a a strong opinion on this uh, as well and uh, many in the Muslim community love Justin uh, Trudeau and the Liberal government and uh, voted uh, for them in office uh, uh, the past few elections so uh, and they seem to believe uh, the commitment that uh, or the, the the words that was mentioned in several public occasions uh, in support of the Muslim community fighting Islamophobia within within his government. How do you quantify this? 
Now, I think the w support for Justin Trudeau in Muslim communities is really a reflection of how impoverished our options are. That next to a Stephen Harper, anyone, anyone can look like a champion of anti-Islamophobia. But you know, Justin Trudeau voted for one of um, Stephen Trudeau's uh, paradigmatically Islamophobic pieces of legislation, the Zero Tolerance for Barbaric Cultural Practices Act. And Stephen Harper's, yeah. Practically, yes. that was Stephen Harper's legislation, but Trudeau's liberals voted it, voted for it, and supported it. This piece of legislation, effectively, explicitly calling Muslims barbaric, drawing on a long genealogy and tradition, a colonial tradition of labeling those subjugated by the state as, as barbarians and savages. And it was not only violent in its language, it was also violent in its effects, imposing extraordinary criminal and um, immigration measures on Muslim communities, again, in the name of protecting uh, Muslim women, but really, in fact, uh, further imperiling their safety. And what Justin Trudeau has now done, now that he's in power, has not been to change the substance of the act, but simply rather to change the name of it in order to remove the overt violence of the name, even as the slightly more covert violence of the substance of the act continues to operate. And I think this is so emblematic of the way that Islamophobia has unfolded under the Trudeau government, which is that we see token gestures, name changes. We saw things like the Islamophobia Summit, a supposedly high profile endeavor to address Islamophobia in the wake of yet another targeted mass killing of Muslims in the streets of London, Ontario. And yet at this hours long summit with so many with so many people participating so many speakers we did not hear a word about so many of the most egregious cases of systemic structural islamophobic power executed against muslims we didn't hear a word about the case of Dr. Hassan Diab, who is facing re-extradition to torturous conditions in France for a crime that all the evidence says he could not possibly have committed. We heard a passing reference to Abdurrahman Abanasawi, who as a child was targeted in a joint FBI-RCMP entrapment operation while he was um, struggling with severe psychiatric disabilities. And this was not uh, uh, you know, a mitigating thing against him. In fact, he was targeted precisely for his psychiatric disabilities, with the RCMP sharing his mental health treatment records with the FBI. He's currently serving a 40-year sentence in a prison that in the in the U.S. ADX Florence, which has been found to breach the the UN Convention Against Torture by keeping people in solitary confinement for years on end. We did not hear a word about the uncompensated victims of Canadian complicity in torture, like Abu Sufyan Abdurazik, who instead of compensating, the government has spent millions of dollars to continue fighting his case for compensation, which again, under international law, is the bare minimum that states are obligated to do for people who have been subjected to the gross and egregious violation of international law that is torture. We did not hear a word about Mohammed Harkat, who is facing um, deportation again in violation of the torture convention uh, to possible to possible torture and who has been under security certificate for the past 20 years. He just marked the, the 20th anniversary of his being under a security certificate. And so in the midst of this high profile event, supposedly dedicated to addressing Islamophobia, all of these most egregious instances of of, um, of state Islamophobia, which are really just the sharpest edges of practices which we know are much more broadly diffused 
in our communities and not only against our Muslim communities, but these powers are also wielded against indigenous land and water defenders who have been labeled and, and criminalized and surveilled as terrorists by the same security organizations that are targeting us. Not a word about these powers, let alone any real effort to dismantle them after 20 years. It's not as if these points uh, are being made anew, uh, that the government needs to learn about Islamophobia. Civil, uh, civil rights, human rights, and anti-racism organizations have been making these points about Canada's war on terror and counterterrorism apparatus and policing apparatus for the last 20 years. And instead of addressing the issues, all we get are tokens and, and band-aids with a few maybe substantive things thrown into the mix. Uh, it's, it's, uh, it's unconscionable. Thank you, Sister Aziza. And uh, Brother Mustafa, I turn to you uh, saying, uh, as, uh, as she mentioned, the, uh, the options of in front of the Muslim community are not much, especially when it comes to elections and the choices, uh, the choices that can be made. Uh, so what are our real options? What are uh, the advocacy efforts from your experience uh, lead to? Because also uh, uh, on top of what she has mentioned of uh, uh, incidents that were totally uh, ignored, but even the commitments that was uh, made by the government, uh, particularly on the institutional level, uh, the review in the CRA, as you said, uh, not much has done through the review of the CBSA. Like many things the community has seen uh, not transcend into real into real action, and yet still we see many in our community, even advocacy organizations, are satisfied with some uh, gesture-like uh, initiatives. Uh, uh, what can our community do, and how can we push our agenda against Islamophobia further? Yeah, so I mean, look, I think the first thing is we we all have the responsibility to educate ourselves. Um, you know, if I'm not learning about what's going on at the CRA. If I'm not learning about what's happening, hey, does my kid's school, do, do they have a plan to address Islamophobia? We're coming up to January 29th. Uh, are, is my school gonna be teaching the kids about what happened on January 29th, the largest attack on a modern, in modern uh, community history uh, on a religious institution? Uh, if I'm not personally learning and trying to make sure that the world around me is improved, maybe it's a moment for self-reflection. Uh, in terms of what we can do to continue to push governments, uh, I think always uh, our, our standards, our moral standards, are probably not uh, uh, anywhere near what's reflected by any party. Uh, but I think what we have to consistently do is, is, is work to minimize harm and to maximize potential benefit. Uh, to our community and to Canadians in general, uh, and, and to Indigenous folks and to those who, who need uh, our solidarity and who need our support. Um, and I think that that really comes down to making sure that we are fighting to the best of our abilities to see change. Um, and so, for example, you know, to speak of the CBSA, while we certainly, the CBSA is a remarkably problematic institution, I know that NCCM is, is leading litigation against the CBSA right now. Um, you know, we just saw CBSA, I mean, I know that it's in second reading right now. There's CBSA oversight legislation that's coming in and it's imperfect legislation, but that's in large part a response to much of the work that's been done by the community. So I don't want, um, you know, and, and I, I think we, we need to be clear-eyed on the problems, but I also don't want our community to become pessimistic. Uh, the work that you do, the work that when you stand up, it does have an impact. 
you know, just a little while after communities and groups like Mac came together and called for stronger and stiffer uh, uh, work to make sure that forced labor products from uh, China and, the, and East Turkestan didn't come to grocery shel uh, shelves. Uh, you know, we've now had a forced labor bill uh, that's going to third reading. Um, and so, the, you know, that's not, it's an imperfect bill. There's a lot there. But I think the point is that, uh, alhamdulillah, with your support and really as Canadian Muslims, all of you, all of your effort, uh, that's when things start to change. And so really what I recommend, you know, Sister Maimona, you make a perfect point about being practical. What I would recommend is that for every person, take two minutes out of your week, literally, that's all I'm asking. Take two minutes out of your week to either educate yourself at the end of your week um, or to pick up the phone and make a phone call to somebody in your local community, to somebody, your local MP, your local MPP, your local counselor. Pick up the phone and say, what are you doing to address Islamophobia? What are you doing to make sure that the lives of everyone is made better? What are you doing to fight for justice? Thank you. I, I, yeah, I think we always appreciate that practical stuff because, you know, we hear guests like yourself and Sister Aziza and, and we really look at these issues and they're real and, and, and they're real and they're impacting real lives. And as Sister Aziza and yourself have been pointing out to the many names that you've uh, named tonight, not just one or two years, 20 years of people's lives are, you know, are, are being impacted. And that's not an individual, it's their entire community, their families, their friends, their social circles, whatever it is. And it's random in the sense that we don't know who potentially uh, can be impacted. So I think those types of practical things are really important for us uh, to think about uh, and, and not just be complicit in thinking about, you know, all we can do is vote or all we can do, and that's important, but what, what more can we do and what more can we do to hold the government accountable practically on a day-in, day-out basis. And I want to ask Sister Aziza if you can comment on this as well. You know, you've pointed out so many things, you know, and where we are right now uh, with the government, but how can we actually feel like, yes, things around us are, 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 you know, are difficult, but we're doing something. We're getting up and we're doing something. So anything that you have to add to what Brother Mustafa has shared with us tonight? Thank you. Thank you so much for, for making sure that we end on a on a very pragmatic note. For me, I take so much education and inspiration from Indigenous and Black struggles against colonialism, against prison violence, against police violence, for abolition, uh, movements that have managed to completely change the terrain of what was otherwise considered to be possible, the uprisings in the wake of George Floyd. Now we have mainstream newspapers talking about abolition and defunding police in a way that never was possible before. Another thing that we learned from these movements is that power concedes nothing without a demand and that freedom and justice are constant struggles it's not a question of you know just going to the government and getting to them to change one thing here or there it's about the everyday work that we do to create conditions not only talking to the government but in our communities on the ground to create the conditions where more just and radical possibilities 
for anti-Islamophobia, anti-racism, anti-colonialism become possible through the government, which is why I've always felt it's important to not only have people doing the work with the government, but our social movements, building our strong social movements and community movements on the ground is so vital to create the type of environment where the type of change we want to see can actually occur. I think it's also extremely important that as Muslims, we expand our view of what we think of as being our struggles. It's not only about uh, contesting the immediate violences of the war on terror and national security. It's also about, um, about working to dismantle the violence of policing and prisons, which we know have taken Muslim lives like those of Suleiman Fakiri and, um, and um, Abdurrahman Abdi. Um, it's not only about contesting uh, the, the, the things that we normally think of as being issues of Islamophobia, but about all of these structures of state violence that are premised on anti-Black and anti-Indigenous racism, which from the origins of Canada have been intimately intertwined with Islamophobia from the establishment of the doctrine of, the, of discovery on the basis of uh, precedents that were established against Muslims and Jews in the Crusades to the present where Canada is now attempting to justify its acquisition of armed drones to use not only for targeted killings in Afghanistan, but also to, to surveil colonized indigenous land here. So a solidarity with indigenous peoples, that is also our struggle as Muslims, as people who many of us have experienced colonialism ourselves and are intimately familiar with us and in our living on colonized land. Struggle for um, animal justice, environmental, environmental justice, economic justice, all of these things which are so intrinsic to our ethics as Muslims and our ability to live as Muslims on this land, those are all part of our struggle uh, as Muslims. To be able to live fully in a Muslim ethic is the heart of the struggle against Islamophobia. And so that means us as Muslims being in solidarity with all of those who are experiencing the many forms of structural violence that are um, embedded in our current system. Thank you so much, uh, Sister Aziz. And I think, uh, you, 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 you made a perfect uh, uh, ending to, uh, to this point at the individual level as well. And uh, from our perspective of what Islam is, all these causes that you mentioned are, uh, that call for justice are Muslim causes. And as a Muslim, we live on this land. It is our responsibility to, uh, to contribute and to stand uh, basically for justice. And as you said, they're also inspiring uh, uh, movements and inspiring efforts. And I also don't want. I also want to highlight the importance of uh, valuing the individual input and the individual struggle. Sometimes we feel, alhamdulillah, we have Brother Mustafa and we have NCCM and we have Sister Aziza and we have Sister Jasmine, and they're doing a great job. No, it actually boils down to. And we have Brother Khaled. <laughs> yeah. So we we uh, we go back and uh, and wait for others to do the work, and I think. Uh, seeing both of you on screen today and hearing your experiences sh inshallah inspires individuals to step up and uh, expand our effort and our struggle to uh, 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 make this an even better country uh, with less uh, injustice and more uh, contribution of us as a, as a community. And I think this is an important message that it is an individual responsibility as Muslims and as citizens of, uh, uh, of, this, uh, of this country. We have many uh, different angles to, uh, to explore. 
Uh, but uh, uh, I believe we, we have a question that came. We do have a question. So uh, as you know, we do welcome uh, questions live uh, to come in. So if you are thinking of asking, please do. You can type your questions in on YouTube or you can uh, call in on Zoom. And that number, uh, the ID to find us on Zoom is 905-822-2626. So as we uh, try to close off tonight, we'll try to address at least one or two of these questions that are coming in. So uh, this question, and I think uh, both of you, and I think Brother Mustafa, you'll have something interesting to add to this uh, with something coming up for you. Uh, what about addressing gaps in literature regarding Islamophobia? Doesn't that affect exposure and education? And I know both uh, Brother Mustafa and Sister uh, Aziza here are involved in research and writing, so I think both of you can address that, inshallah. It's a, it's a, really, it's a really, really critical question. Uh, I think often about what we read and, and what we consume and, and how that influences us to uh, try to be effective advocates for justice. Uh, I remember uh, my grandma, uh, uh, who passed away from cancer when I was six, mm -hmm. uh, one of the things that she gave me when, before she passed away was this book by, she said, this is one of those books that I know you need to read. And it was a book by Zainab Ghazali, uh, who was uh, you know, horrifically tortured uh, in Egypt. Uh, and chronicled uh, uh, this incredible human being's uh, advocacy, but also her internal journey uh, and her internal spiritual awareness while she was going through what she went through. Uh, and that book had a profound impact on the way that I uh, tried to, as a young person, was trying to understand what I needed to do to live. Zainab Ghazali has this piece in, uh, in the book where a dog comes and they sick, like they put a dog in her cage and she makes dua and the dog like essentially collapses. If I, again, I read, read it a long, long time ago. But I think that had such a formative moment for me. So I think like the, there's a lot of literature that's out there. I would really recommend uh, doing like a search and there's lots of good resources that can help direct you from things like the autobiography of Malcolm X uh, to uh, you know, many, many books about activism and standing up for justice. Uh, there's a lot out there. Um, I, but, and, I, and again, and as you're doing this work of researching and learning about Islamophobia and giving books so that people can learn about uh, the struggles that folks have gone through and also their spiritual struggles, I'd also always recommend that you take time to also read about how to improve yourself. You know, when we look at the word dhulm in the Quran, like in oppression, uh, often it's used in the context, not just of external oppression, but internal oppression. That you're oppressing yourself. Uh, how am I, if you're trying to stand up to be a, an advocate for justice, is this coming from my own ego? Am I really just trying to get my name out there? Am I trying to do something that's not helpful? Uh, I'd always recommend that when we're thinking about reading that literature of advocacy, we're thinking about how to also look at literature that improves us as advocates. Thank you so much. Very insightful. Um, we have a few questions coming in, but uh, Sister Aziza, I will, um, if you want to address what, uh, this question on education, but also I'll leave you with one question. How can we make sure our demands are heard and not met with an absence of response or figurative action and no substance? Uh, thank you for, for both of those 
those important questions. Um, so first, on the question of, of literature, um, I think so often we think that racism persists because of an absence of, of information and that if we just had more facts, more evidence, more narratives of brutality, that people would recognize Islamophobia and other forms of racism for what they are and they would be compelled to act. But in fact, what we see from the experience with policing, for instance, where we have seen incident upon incident of grotesque police brutality, even filmed by, by uh, body cams, and yet very little is done to rectify those structures of violence. We've had public inquiries on on, on, on experiences of and complicity by security agencies in grotesque acts of torture by security agencies, and still Islamophobia persists. Something that was really so disturbing to me was how even in the wake of the Quebec mosque shooting, the cold-blooded massacre of, of Muslims while in prayer, a majority of Canadians still thought that the problem of Islamophobia was being over, overblown and were against the um, M103 study to not even actually do anything about Islamophobia, but just study, just study the phenomenon without making anything, you know, binding on the government to do in response. And so the problem of racism persists not because of the absence of information or evidence, but because of the presence of narrative frameworks in order to justify it. The black philosopher, uh, late philosopher Charles Mills, described this as an epistemology of ignorance, that racism persists not as simply a passive void of information, but because of the active propagation of racist knowledge as truth. And so in order to begin to dismantle and contest that, what we need are new frameworks, new narratives, uh, new lenses through which Muslim life is seen. And literature is absolutely indispensable for that. One of my favorite books is uh, Home Fired by the British Pakistani author Kamila Shamsi, which is a radical retelling of the Greek myth of Antigone, but set in the context of the war on terror. To me, that book did more than a hundred reports on uh, on on uh, you know critical op-eds or news stories on counterterrorism in order to contest the narratives that permit uh, the uh, absolute dehumanization of Muslims in the war on terror. So literature is uh, absolutely vital. Shifting these narratives is absolutely vital, and that's the only way ultimately i think that um that we can ensure that the uh, that the government can't simply continue to justify abuses against muslims uh by uh, perpetuating this idea that well it's not islamophobia if muslims are really a threat it's not islamophobia if it's really just good national security practice um We've been asking for the same things for the last uh, 20, 20 years, and yet these practices continue to endure. And so in order to shift the needle and to move our movements, I think, again, it's extremely important that we show the connections between what it is that we're struggling for and other struggles against state racism, uh, Black and Indigenous struggles against police brutality, prison brutality, and colonialism, and to show how this is part of the, uh, of the fabric of the Canadian state, deeply interwoven uh, into its foundings, and to not continue to rely on these same institutions of violence as our salvation and the solution to what we're facing, when in fact, when in fact they're their cause. And again, in order to advance this, uh, 
we can't simply be directing all of our efforts um, at the government. What makes a government change and take heed is the understanding that the public will not continue to tolerate the status quo. And for that, we need to be building strong relations within our own communities, but also with other communities facing related forms of violence. Thank you so much, Uvert. Uh, many, uh, many interesting perspectives and, and very important uh, aspects to this uh, conversation that affects every single Muslim here and actually affects also generations to come. What we do now will impact our lives and will impact uh, the lives of our children and grandchildren and their ability to live as uh, uh, Muslims and their ability to live and practice uh, the lifestyle that they, uh, they choose. Um, I would like to summarize some of the practical things I learned today in this uh, interesting conversation as also a means to uh, make it as a as a, a guide for us to, to, to act, sitting by two inspiring and uh, uh, proactive individuals. I believe both agreed to the importance of education, both agreed to the importance of being critical to the narratives and the frameworks that are being fed uh, to us and to be create our own narratives about what, we, uh, uh, what we're facing from our own perspective. And then also to take, as individuals and as communities, uh, take initiative to also educate, to engage with other communities, uh, to create joint struggles, and also to uh, uh, put public pressure through education and through uh, advocacy uh, on the governments in place to uh, change the conditions and take it slightly. And subhanAllah, in our lifetimes and in our short spans of advocacy relative to uh, uh, to the uh, incidents that are happening around us, we've seen progress. We've seen the power of the community when they come together on a particular 100%. cause that they actually uh, are able to change. Not everything, but they are able to change. And we've seen the power of individuals like our uh, dear guests that we are very fortunate to have with us today. And uh, we thank them a lot for their uh, contributions in the community and for their uh, hard work. And we uh, pray that Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala uh, grants them uh, support and tawfiq and acceptance inshallah and guidance to do uh, to do uh, more uh, and I'll pass it back to Namuna to close inshallah I Jazakallah khair thank you so much for both of our guests and for your time tonight with us um, so I want to uh, you know as we wrap up give you a little bit about where we're headed next week uh, because we want to continue this is a two-part uh, series on Islamophobia and focusing on its impact nationally as well as locally uh, in terms of communities and individuals so uh, Brother Khaled maybe a little bit of insight on where we're headed next week with this conversation so I think we've given enough uh, 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 criticism to the government this week. Next week we're giving them a chance to respond and tell us, uh, take them to uh, the question of what are they doing uh, uh, to address Islamophobia and uh, hopefully they will be able to uh, tell us what's happening, what are the challenges, what are the obstacles and what are they planning to do. So we hope to host uh, members of the parliament, members of the government, the cabinet uh, on the show next week to have this conversation about the government's role to uh, combat, us, combat Islamophobia. And uh, the audience are the judge at the end, which, uh, which, uh, which part of the conversation uh, are they more comfortable with, but the responsibility at the end on us as a community to take action and to uh, impact and make it make a difference inshallah 
So join us next week for part two of this conversation on Islamophobia, inshallah. Uh, so we'll be here live in studio online at uh, 7.30 Thursday evenings. I uh, will ask Brother Khalid to maybe close into dial before we end tonight. Subhanak Allahumma bihamdik. Nashhadu an la ilaha illa ant. Nastaghfiruka wa natubu ilayk. Bismillah ar-Rahman ar-Rahim wal-Asr. Inna al-insan lafi khusr. Illa al-ladhina amanu wa amilu al-salihati wa tawasaw bil-haqqi wa tawasaw bil-sabr. Jazakumullah khair. Assalamu alaykum. Wa alaykum as-salam. Islam in Life is an online production by the Muslim Association of Canada.